time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel was journeying through the wilderness. And here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong as I was on the day that Moses sent me, and my strength is now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, the great fortified cities, that maybe with the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. So Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron was originally Kiriath Arba. This Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from the war. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that you'd give us understanding. Uh, we pray that that understanding would not merely be some um, intellectual thing. We certainly pray it would be that. We pray that you'd give us uh, understanding that would in, take on our whole body, take on our minds, our hearts, our emotions, um, what we do with our hands, our feet, what we do with our mouths. We pray that you'd open up your word and that you'd speak to us. We do thank you that you are a promise-making God, and we thank you for people like Caleb of old and the way he took up your promises. And we pray that you would give us hearts that would follow you wholeheartedly, all for your glory. Amen. Um, hopefully, you gathered that this story assumes you know some other stories. And it's possible you don't know those stories. They're very important stories. So Caleb is saying, hey, Moses made me a promise. And you're like, okay, so when did that happen and when did that go? And that drops us back to something called Numbers. It's the fourth uh, book in the Old Testament. Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, a very interesting thing that happens in the midst of that. But even that, I want to kind of drop back before there. Um, God has this thing about choosing people. Um, sometimes we get uncomfortable about that. But God chooses people. God chose Noah. Didn't choose other people, chose Noah. God chose Abraham and Sarah. Didn't choose other people, chose Abraham and Sarah. And he makes a covenant with them. He elects them. That's actually a term we use. We, he elects them. They get chosen. And, and I don't think anyone that's in, in this room who loves Jesus would say we didn't somehow feel chosen. Not like, I was chosen and I deserved it, but like, I don't know, I was chosen. It's really weird. God likes me. It's really strange, but he kind of chose me. And what are we to do with that, right? Because I don't feel like I was so smart that I got Jesus and I like thank, you know, Jesus is grateful that I understood him and I picked him out of a crowd, but rather that I feel like somehow Jesus kind of drew me into himself. I, that's what I mean by chosen, drew me into myself. Now that we're chosen can make us uncomfortable because we can begin to think like, yeah, I'm chosen. I'm pretty special. I'm pretty, you know, well, that's one way we think about that. But actually that's not the intent of it because we're not chosen just so we can feel great about ourselves. Look, chosen because I have all these privileges. No, we're, we're chosen because we're bearers of a privilege. We're people who have a responsibility. Not a privilege, but a responsibility. So one of the first people to be chosen is a fellow named Abraham. Abraham is the father of all of Israel. To him, God makes these huge promises. In chapter 12 and in chapter 13 of Genesis, he makes these promises. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will give you children, make you a great nation. Your name will be great. And this land that you're walking on, it will be yours, and I will bless you. And, and I will be a blessing, and you will be a blessing, those who bless you, and I'll curse the one who curses you. That's a, that's, those are big promises. Now, here's what makes those promises really big for those of you who don't know about Abraham. 
Abraham, when he got the promises, was 75 years old and childless. And so when you're told that you're going to have a kid and you're 75 years old, eh, I think he knew then that was a long shot, right? I mean, that's just not normally going to happen. And his wife's just like 10 years younger than him. I mean, it's a younger woman, but 65, I think we all go, hmm, that's dubious too, right? So he's got a promise that he's going to have a kid. He isn't going to get the next year or the year after that. In fact, it's like 20, 24 years later, 25 years later that he gets a kid. And his wife, who's like, he's 100 and she's 90, has their son Isaac. And it's a shocker. So, but God made a promise, right? God made a promise. Just, it is a shocker. Let me tell you how much of a shocker was. When, when his wife, Sarah, is hearing this, she busts out laughing. So does Abraham. Abraham's laughing in the face of God. <laughs> I'm going to have a kid. And then Sarah is laughing kind of back in a tent. And, and Yahweh, the Lord, says to Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? And Sarah denies laughing. But I think she should have said, because it's stupid. There's no way that I'm a 90-year-old and I'm going to have a kid. This is, this is ludicrous. It's nuts. But God makes promises. And that's the wonderful thing about Genesis. We see that God makes promises and he keeps promises. Sarah has a kid. It takes about 25 years for that promise to happen. When we get to the book of, end of the book of Genesis, only one of those promises have been kept, right? He's going to have a kid. They're going to be a great nation. They're going to have land. Well, I suppose two promises, and he's going to be their God. So at the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's family, all of his descendants, number 70. It's not what you call a great nation. Call it what you might. I, my opinion, don't think it's a great nation. So we get the book of, end of Genesis, end of the book of Genesis, we're like, eh, that's it? Okay. We get to the beginning of Exodus, and all of a sudden, 400 years later, this place is huge. These people are just all over the place, so much so that the Egyptians who own the land, who it's their land, are threatened by these people and begin to oppress them, horribly oppress them. If you've ever read the first or second chapters of um, Exodus, it's some terrible things that goes on. I mean, they're trying to kill little babies is what they're trying to do to oppress the Israelites and to keep them from growing. So God takes notice of the fact that the people of Israel are suffering, and God sends a servant, Moses, and he makes lots of promises to Moses. And Moses is a little uncomfortable at first and says, I don't speak really well. I stutter and everything, and I really don't think I should be the guy who goes to speak to Pharaoh. And Moses, God says to Moses, yeah, you're going, and here's what I'm going to do. So Moses goes. And God does some astounding things through Moses and through Aaron and just through God. God frees the people of Israel, but he does that through a series of plagues. So these horrific oppressors are just humbled by God doing various things, like turning the rivers into blood, having frogs everywhere. I don't know about you, but that sounds awful. So I like an occasional frog, but frogs everywhere just sounds awful to me, right? Frogs are everywhere. Cows aren't doing really well. And finally, the firstborn of all the Egyptians is killed. And amazingly, none of the firstborn of the of people of Israel are killed because of something called Passover. And so Pharaoh finally relents, frees the people. And so the people get up to, the, to this water, the Red Sea, and the Pharaoh of sudden comes to his straight mind. He goes, what am I doing? I'm just giving away all of our free labor. How are we ever going to make it? We, this is nuts. And so they go after the people of Israel, which freaks the people of Israel out. Because remember, they were oppressed people, right? They didn't have like armaments and stuff. And so they're seeing all the people of Egypt coming after them, and they cry out to God, and God does this amazing thing. Most of you have seen the movie, right? God does this amazing thing. I mean, all of a sudden the water just, you know, spreads in two, and the people of Israel walk through this water. 
They get through. The Egyptians come chasing after them, scares the people of Israel. But all of a sudden, the water goes back. And all those Egyptian soldiers and army are wiped out at the sea. It's an astounding thing that the people of Israel get to see. Astounding thing that they get to see. And they sing. Miriam writes this song, and they sing this song of Miriam. And there's just like this rejoicing. Because, I mean, if you've ever watched a horror movie, and at the end of the horror movie, the bad guy gets it, right? It's like, that's a great ending of a horror movie. I don't watch horror movies. That's what I'm told happens at the end of horror movies, okay? I mean, there's just like rejoicing. This is the great, that guy's dead. Of course, a lot of horror movies, you never know. Is that guy really dead? Is he going to come back in the sequel? What's going to happen? But in this case, in this case, the Egyptians are dead. And this is an astounding thing that people have seen. And God kept the promise. God said to Moses, I will free this people. And the way you know that I'll do it is you'll come back to the mountain where I've met you. And they come back to the mountain where the Lord met Moses. And God does another spectacular thing. He appears in this kind of stunning sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark moment sort of deal. Except it was real. It wasn't a movie. And the people are freaked out by his power and everything that comes. And they just say, hey, Moses, you go talk to God. And that's what happens. And you would think as the people of Israel who have seen this major thing happen with water and have experienced the almighty presence of God at this mountain and receive all these things would be like faithful. But the people of Israel have this a profound ability to not be faithful, to be like me, to be an idiot. Right? I mean, God does amazing things and sometimes I'm an idiot. Maybe you're an idiot too, but sometimes I'm just an idiot. And the people of Israel are just idiots. It's like, okay, what? you saw this, and you saw that, but you're doubting God. What's the matter with you? They, they go through several more of these episodes, by the way. They're like freaked out. God's brought us in the wilderness. How are we going to eat? And God provides manna, this amazing flaky little substance that they can gather every day and eat and provides for them. And one time he even provides quail, something I would never eat after reading that story, but he provides quail for them. And you would think that would just be enough. So we, we move into like four more books. We're in the book of Numbers. We're in the 13th chapter. And the Lord says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take one guy from each tribe. There are 12 tribes. And I want you to send them out as spies. Have them go look at the land. And have them come back and give you a report. So Moses chooses a guy from each one. And one guy's named Caleb. Another guy's named Joshua. And sends those 12 guys into the, into look at all of Palestine. And they find this amazing um, fruit. It's just the beginning of fruit. And they, they, two guys actually have to carry back this like cluster of grapes on a pole. That's how big the cluster of grapes is. And they come back with pomegranates and figs. It's an astounding thing. And, and they just see all this land, and it's, it's beautiful. And I, and I like what uh, Eugene Peterson describes, the way he talks about this, this um, deal. Here's the report from the spies. We went to the land to which you sent us, and oh, it does flow with milk and honey. Just look at this fruit. The only thing that the people, the only thing is that the people who live there, well, they're fierce, and their cities are huge and well fortified. Worse yet, we saw the descendants of the great Anak. Amalekites are spread out into the Negev. The Hittites and Jebusites and the Amorites hold the hill country, and the Canaanites are established in the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan. So, Hey, God promised a land full of milk and honey, and you're right, it's a land full of milk and honey, but there are these really horrific people there. It's scary. And a guy named Caleb interrupts, and he calls for silence. And he said, let's go up and take this land, and now we can do it. 
But the other said this, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread scary rumors among the people of Israel. They said, we scouted out the land from one end to the other. It's a land that will swallow people whole. Everyone we saw was huge. Why, even the Nephilim giants, the Anak giants come from the Nephilim, along them we felt like grasshoppers. And they looked down on us like we were grasshoppers. God makes a promise to the people of Israel. Hey, I'm going to give this land of milk and honey. God says to Moses, send out 12 spies. And they come back, and the, all 12 spies go, the land is a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at these grapes, look at these figs, look at these pomegranates. It's astounding. We shouldn't go, say 10. I know what God promises, but we shouldn't go. There are these giants there, and we look like grasshoppers to them. And one guy, and really a second one as well, but one guy stands up and goes, no, we should... We should go now. We should take the land. There's a promiser who's named the Lord. Sometimes we call him Yahweh. And then there are promisees, right? I'm assuming employer, employee. I'm trying to come up with what's the opposite of promiser, promisees. But I'm a promisee, right? So here they are, they're these promisees. And they're promised this great thing, and they freak out. And here's a delightful thing about anxiety. It's contagious. I don't know if you've noticed that in our society lately, but anxiety is contagious. And so if you get anxious, other people get anxious. And soon everyone is anxious. And what happens when people get anxious is they all glob together. They just glob together. Because people who aren't anxious don't have to glob onto other people. They can actually be who they are. Caleb isn't the least bit anxious, doesn't have to glob onto anybody. But everyone just kind of globs onto each other and they freak out and Caleb goes, why? Let's do this. God's made this promise. What I love about the people of Israel in these particular uh, spies is they say, we were like grasshoppers. They looked upon us like we were grasshoppers. How do they know? How do they know how people look at them? If anyone has a sense of how other people look at ourselves, it's us. We live in a society that we're always attentive to how we look, right? Where if there's anything media works at, is helping us to pay attention to how we look or don't look. Media is working very hard to help us to think differently about ourselves. But how do you know if you're, you look like a grasshopper to someone? How do you know if you are a grasshopper? And let's pretend for a moment you are. Why does it matter? The people of Israel and these 10 spies have a perspectival issue. They have a problem with perspective. Okay, so you look like grasshoppers. Okay, so you're short, small, whatever. Who's fighting the battle? Who's in charge of this battle? And Caleb's this thing of like, well, let's go. Let's do this. Because Caleb has a very different perspective. It's really not about me. It's about the God who is in charge of me. You may look at your life and think of yourself as a grasshopper. Well, I'm a grasshopper. What can God do with me? Right? I mean, I'm kind of thin, kind of old. All right, old. I'm, I'm kind of thin, I'm old, I got a big nose. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons that, you know, I mean, what could I possibly, how could God ever use me? Well, I think my description of myself is somewhat accurate. You could choose to argue with me, that'd be okay. But I think my description is pretty accurate about myself. 
But the real issue is, so what? I mean, is it all about me or is it about God and the people that God sends me to and what God wants to do in the midst of their lives and in my life? You might consider yourself a grasshopper. People might look at you as a grasshopper. Does it matter in the least bit? Well, not according to Caleb. Caleb couldn't give a rip. Caleb's like, hey, hey, come on. Now, here's this thing we won't like in the book of Numbers, and particularly in the 13th and 14th chapter. God gets really ticked. He gets very angry. Because the people rebel. They start grumbling about Moses and about Aaron, and, and they just say, we should go back to Egypt. Why did we even come out here? God's going to kill us. We should go back to Egypt. Fascinating that people often prefer the chaos they know as opposed to the chaos they don't know, right? We should go back to Egypt, and that's where we should go. And, and Caleb and Joshua stand up and they go, are you kidding me? God's with us. God has promised us. Who knows, if we go up, God may actually, if he delights in us, we'll be fine. But God gets ticked. And God says these words, you know what? These people have seen so much that I've done. They saw what I did in Egypt. They saw what I did in the wilderness. Moses, I'm going to make you in charge. And Moses said, no, you can't do that. You've got to stick with his people. And so God says, all right, I'll stick with his people, but this group of people, these 10 spies, no. And this generation, no. They will never go into the land. Their children will go into the land. It's a pretty striking word. It's not the word we want to hear. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I always like the grace of God a great more. I mean, that's something I really delight in. But the reality is from time to time, God goes, no, 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 that won't work. But Caleb gets a promise at that very time point. The ten spies actually die in a plague. The people are sent to wandering for 40 years. But Caleb gets this promise. The land that you've trotted on will be yours. Why? Because Caleb followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The word heart in both Joshua and in the book of Numbers in relationship to Caleb is huge. He has his heart that is filled with following God. He loves God. Now, I don't know about you, but... Um, my heart tries to be filled with God. I tell the Lord, I want to give you all of me, always, forever. This past week, I've spent some time with the Lord, and I just, you know, I just said, I really want to give you my life. But I find that my heart can often be fickle. Now, not fickle in like some crazy way, but I just know that other things vie inside of my heart. I'm a, I don't know about you, but I'm a born and bred consumerist. I like to buy things. I feel really good when I click that buy now on Amazon. There's something that happens in me at that moment where I'm like, yeah, feels good. And when a little brown package arrives that's not lost by UPS, when that little brown package arrives, it's like, this is so awesome. It like meets some needs. Something goes on in me. Or, you know, and, and, and when I, various things happen on my phone, it's like, I'm into that stuff. And really, that's not what I want. What I really want is a, law, uh, a heart that Caleb has for the Lord. A heart that just follows him wholeheartedly. A heart that's really open to whatever God wants me to do. And to hear his promises and to be the promisee and go, yeah. 
Here's an 85-year-old guy that is still the same as he was 40 years ago, 45 years ago. He loves the Lord. For some reason, God has preserved the strength that he has at 85, and his heart is still filled towards the Lord. How does that happen? Well, God gives some clues. You saw what I did. My guess is you can look at your life and you can go, yeah, I saw what God did. Yeah, God did that, right? I have things in my life that I can go, oh, yeah, God did that. Oh, yeah, God did that, and God did that, and God did that. I have a problem with a short-term memory, though. It, like, I have, I suppose, a spiritual Alzheimer's from time to time, right? I forget all the things that God has done. What has God done for you? What have you seen him do for you? How can you and I recollect on that material and go, that's right, God made promises to me, and he's done this, and he's done this, and he's done this. And, and really, this week might be a good week to pull out a pen and a piece of paper and start writing down, what promises did God make to me, and what has he done for me? How has he shown himself to be true? And then where is he sending you now? Where is he sending you? I mean, maybe you're an accountant, and that's your deal, and that's what God calls you to be. How is God sending you to be an accountant for him? Well, God knows we need godly accountants. You know, we need godly shopkeepers, godly moms, godly dads, godly friends. Where is he sending you that you can be his person and that you can go, Lord, I'm going to go where you send me, and I'm going to trust that I'm up to this task. Joshua is filled with this interesting language of, I've given you this land, now go take it. God has given you calls upon your life, now go do it. Do what he says. Our problem is our hearts often become like the ten or like the big people of that big crowd of Israelites where the ten spies make their hearts melt. There are times we just kind of lose our courage, lose our ability to need what we want to do. There, there's a fellow named Murray Bowen who came up with a little way of talking about um, our hearts. He said, okay, so I want you to imagine just a straight circle, a solid lines. And in the circle, we might say is uh, the solid self, the basic self. Now may, imagine a bigger circle, but this time see kind of like perforated lines. And that self is kind of our pseudo self or false self. Whenever we're with a crowd of people, there's a bit of porosity to it. So whenever we're with a group of people, we kind of like learn to be with this group of people. And then we're with this group of people, we learn to be with this group of people. That's kind of what the false self, pseudo self is. It's not always bad. It sometimes it's our ability just to be with people. But some people have a big pseudo self. I mean, they're like chameleon-esque when they're with uh, folks, right? Kind of zealot, if you ever saw that sort of movie. They just kind of move. And the real key is to have something known as a solid self that you are, that you are, that you are. Who is he when he's at home? That you're the same person with that person and that person. And the solid self is something that we're trying to grow as Christians. The solid self is something that we really understand who God is, and we go, yeah, no, I can't do that. And we try to find a way that we don't have to do it in a reactive sort of way, but we really understand who we are. Caleb has a very solid self. There's something about Caleb that understands the promises of God, understands what he's called him to, and comes to, to Joshua and says, hey, God made me this promise. I'm ready. Phil, give me that land. I want that. And he maintains who he is. 
And very few have reached 85 yet. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Very few of you have reached 85 yet. But who do you want to be when you're 85? Very few of you have reached 40 yet. And Caleb's pretty solid as a 40-year-old. Who do you want to be as a, as a 40-year-old? Part of our task as the people of God is to pay attention to the promiser, to the one who's made a choice of you. God chose you. Each one in this room, whether you like it or not, God has chosen you. And what are you going to do with that choice that he's made in you? And God has made you certain promises, certain promises that he will keep, big ones like Jesus' life, death, and dying, and resurrection. That's a huge promise for you. You're a forgiven person. What are you going to do with those promises? How are you going to live into being this person God has made you to be? Because God isn't just sending Caleb. He's sending each of you. Sending you to your neighborhood to love your neighbors and to be present to your neighbors and to find ways to demonstrate the love of Jesus and to speak the love of Jesus to your neighbors. Sending you to your workplaces or to where you study. Um, He's sending you there to show the love of Jesus, and to speak the love of Jesus. And that's kind of scary, isn't it? Because if there's one thing our society is really not crazy about right now is people who speak about Jesus in such a way that people should know Jesus and give their lives to Jesus. If there's one thing we can say right now, that is not like a popular suggestion, right? Hey, you should give your life to Jesus. But here's the thing about the one who makes the promise. The one who makes the promise is the one who actually goes before the people of Israel into the land of Israel. And he gives them the land, and they take what he's already given them. And here's the thing you can trust about God. God is already moving in the lives of people you know. And what you're trying to do is discover what that is, and to be bold and courageous like Caleb is, and to know what you believe firmly. It would be nice that... If at 40, when you reach 40, you have a really solid self and you have a real sense of who God is, and I, I encourage you to work towards that. And it'd be awesome when we reach 85 that that would really be who we are and, and we would all just inherit land like Caleb does, but it doesn't always work that way. Fidelity towards God doesn't always mean you get fantastic gifts. Fidelity towards God means sometimes you're just faithful no matter what happens. This past week, I was reading, because I'm a nerd, I was reading a, a book called The Apostolic Fathers. These are, um, these are er, the earliest letters after the Bible um, written by Christians. It's a hodgepodge. I mean, it's not, there wasn't like this incredible library. It's just kind of like what survived. And these were some of the things that survived. And one of the more powerful stories is a story uh, called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. There was a guy named Polycarp. I know, who names their kid Polycarp? But there was a guy named Polycarp, and he was a bishop. He was in charge of a particular town called Smyrna. Who names a town named Smyrna? I mean, these names are weird. Polycarp Smyrna, but he's the bishop of Smyrna, which really means he's the bishop of a tiny little church in a very big town of non-Christians. And he's 85 years old, and there comes a point where the Romans don't like the Christians. And they particularly don't like Polycarp because he keeps talking about Jesus. And you're thinking to yourself, What's so controversial about liking Jesus? Because liking Jesus actually means a counterclaim to the Romans. So he gets arrested. He gets arrested, and this will give you a sense of it. The people who arrest him say, what's the harm in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense? 
I mean, not a really big deal, right? Caesar's Lord, little incense. You're fine. Polycarp, you're free. Be free. What's the harm in saying Caesar's Lord and offering incense and thereby saving yourself? I mean, it's a pretty innocuous act, just saying Caesar's Lord burning incense. Now, at first he gave them no answer. But when they persisted, he said, I'm not going to do what you're suggesting to me. See, Polycarp believes that Jesus is Lord. And Polycarp will only offer incense, worship, to Jesus. Polycarp will never offer up worship to Caesar. Fascinating fact. At this time period, if you were a Christian, you were called an atheist. Because you didn't believe in all the gods of Rome, particularly the god Caesar, who is Lord. If you were a Christian, you were actually making a counterclaim. You were saying, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And no one in Rome liked this, because that meant you were not a good citizen. You were not loyal. And here's how you could prove that you were real. Just say, Caesar's Lord, and burn a little incense, you're off scot-free. And there's stories of Christians who end up doing this, who recant their faith and say, and they live. Polycarp won't do it, so they, uh, they, he puts them in front of the magistrate, and, they, and the magistrate says, swear the oath and I, will re- and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But as he continued to insist, swear by the genius of Caesar, Polycarp answered, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as you request and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully, I am a Christian. Now, if you, want me to, if you want to learn the doctrine of Christianity, name and day and give me a hearing. <laughs> You'll love that boldness. <laughs> um, what happens to Caesar is he gets burned at the stake. And as the story goes, um, the fire does not consume him. And so they have to come and plunge a sword into him, and he bleeds to death, and then they burn him completely. Now, that's certainly no Caleb ending to the story. What that is, is someone who understands who the promiser is and understands what the promise is and understands how much he loves the one who promises. It takes someone who's quite solid in the faith to be able to do what Polycarp does. I think odds are really safe that none of us will exercise the gift of martyrdom. It's the gift that only occurs once in your life. But it's pretty safe that none of us will be martyrs in our lives. And maybe martyrdom, the facing of martyrdom, would really help us decide who we are and whose we are. And and part of the problem is we sometimes forget how good it is. Here's a little unknown fact about Caleb to most people. Caleb is actually not a descendant of Abraham. He's a Kenizzite. He's a son of Jephunneh, a Kenizzite, who has somehow become part of the people of God. Somehow become a part of the people of Judah, no less. Sometimes outsiders get the Christian faith better than insiders. 
And the danger for those of us who just like grow up in the faith and know the faith is it kind of becomes commonplace to us. And Judges has this continued theme of outsiders like Rachel and the Gibeonites and Caleb getting it. Here's the thing I want to say to any of us who really know Jesus. It's so easy to take him for granted. It's so easy just to get lulled into a sleep and just kind of move on. But the, really, the reality is you need to grasp hold of Jesus. And you need to do it every day. And when you're grasping hold of Jesus, you're grasping hold of the one who already holds onto you deeply. So grab hold of him and figure out whose you are and who you are and what promises God has made to you and what promises God has kept for you. And then how might you become like Caleb? One of my prayers this week is that God would make me like Caleb. That I would have a heart for the Lord that is completely, wholeheartedly like his. I pray that God will do it, and I feel really comfortable in this. I think God's willing to do that in my life. My prayer for all of us as the people of God is that God would help our hearts to be devoted to him, that we would be filled deeply with him, that the only person we would want to follow after would be our Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for Caleb of old. Uh, we thank you for his courage in the face of 10 other folks to stand his ground and to know who you are. We thank you, Lord, for the way he um, receives the promise. And we thank you for faithful Christians who we have seen you bless after years and decades of good service. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people by the time we reach 40, that we would be solidly filled with you. And by the time we reach, we reach 85, or in Polycarp's case, 86, that we would be solidly fixed on you. We thank you that you hold on to us, and we pray that we would hold on to you. We thank you for the witness of people like Polycarp. And we pray that we would have the ability to deeply say that Jesus is Lord. There is no other. We're grateful to be your people, grateful to be your people together. Now bless us now. Strengthen our hearts that we might follow you, that we might bear all the gift of being your chosen ones, that we might have the privilege of sharing this good news with others. Go before us, Lord, and use us. Amen.